Hello, and welcome to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. Um, my name is Rosenfeld, so it's my podcast, uh, and I'm Lou Rosenfeld. There's actually two Rosenfelds now at Rosenfeld Media, so I feel like I have to be upfront about that for people. Anyway, uh, I'm happy to have Lisa Welchman join me, who is an old friend of mine, author of a Rosenfeld Media book, Managing Chaos, and going to be the opening keynoter at the Enterprise UX conference on June 14th. That's in San Francisco, enterpriseux.net. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lou. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. And, you know, we were warming up a little bit. We had, this is a 20-minute podcast. It had about an hour and 20-minute warm-up conversation. And one of the things that you were saying, Lisa, was that uh, people like you, but they don't always like uh, your message. What's your message and why is it not so popular? Most recently, my message is uh, those of us who have contributed to all the loveliness of what is digital um, have kind of made a mess out of things and that we really maybe ought to start imposing some limits, parameters, standards, policies, all the nasty words, controls. Can I say them all in one line? Control, policy, standards, governance. Wait a minute, how can this be controlled? How can you control anything digital that's done by all these people with all this power in their, on their desktops and their laptops? How can that be done? Um, well, I didn't say control. I said controls, huh. right? Like knobs, like volume controls. It can be at one or as in Spinal Tap, it could be 11, right? It can be anywhere in between those things. The reverb can be set one way. There's all kinds of controls in the digital arena and we need to tune them intentionally. I think that a lot of people think that there is a possible world and I guess technically speaking they're true where we can sort of just do whatever we want um, online and don't have to have any kind of controls or constraints. But I'd argue that very few things in the world work that way and that when you get one or two or three or more people in a room together doing any type of activity you start to develop norms and patterns. And after a while, you start to sort of institutionalize them and iron them down. And if you're gonna get really serious, you start to write them down. And that's all governance really is. Um, if you don't do that, you can sort of end up with some messes and misunderstandings. And so that's what I think we see happening online right now. We've spent the last you know, 20, 25 years building things, shoveling things online, trying things out. Um, some things have worked, some things have not worked. Um, but even with the things that we have that aren't working, um, we're not taking steps to actually manage them um, or govern them well. Well, you know, this, we're, we're recording this in uh, late March of, of 2018. And I'm wondering if you feel like the uh, recent travails of Mr. Zuckerberg and his walled garden uh, illustrate issues of, of governance in, in either a positive or a negative way. I think it just illustrates why governance is required um, I think that's a, an extreme use case of what can go wrong and a very prominent use case of what was go, can, go, can go wrong um, when you're not governing well or not governing in a mature manner. But I would also argue that, you know, for a lot of the people that are listening into this, a lot of the organizations that they work with or that they work in have similar behaviors. They're just not as prominent um, what they do isn't as pervasive, and so they're not caught out as often as something, someone like a, a, a Facebook or even a Twitter, or you, name, you name them, you know. Or, you know, if you want to go into the government arena, the, you know, the current president of the United States 
has some behavior that might be a violation of a digital policy about the use of social media by the executive branch of the US government. But I don't know that there is a policy that way. If there is, then maybe it's not being enforced or maybe it's extremely broad, but there are just all kinds of things that are happening in the digital arena right now that scream why we need to be speaking in a more mature manner about digital governance. So let, let's get to what that looks like, but it, it sounds like you're, you're saying there's patterns already of, in terms of organizational behavior and, and how governance has already evolved either or, or organically or in a more intentional way in, inside of large organizations. Um, so, you know, and I know you get into this in the book, but what's the sort of basic guts? What do we, you know, what does governance look like? How is it, what's the sort of commonality that you see across the board? Well, I can talk about sort of the evolution of it, the evolution of governance inside of an organization. So a lot of times people are really afraid of governance because they think that you're going to sort of stifle innovation or sort of choke, choke the life out of something. And I'd argue that they're probably right if you govern too early, right? So, you know, if you're just launching something or trying something out or prototyping it, maybe that's not a time to put in sort of aggressive governing controls. Maybe you don't have to think too much about decision making. You probably do have to consider some basic policies. You don't want to make sure that you're not doing things that are illegal. There might be some standards around branding or some other just sort of broad things. But for the most part, you're just trying stuff out, throwing it at the wall. So, you know, to see if it'll stick, to see if it'll work. At some point during that process, you start to see things that actually work for your organization. Behaviors that you'd like to replicate, functionality that you'd like to scale. Before you start replication or scaling, that's when you really need to start thinking about the governing ecosystem. You need to understand what that functionality is doing. You need to start understanding what data it's handling. You need to understand certain design components. You really need to look at it holistically. And I'd also argue at this point, you need to start considering things like at scale or with replication, would this be ethical? right? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What could potentially go wrong? So you need to start examining at that point and start to find out where in the organization these decisions need to be made. And then what's the substance of those types of decisions so that you can sort of design the larger scale version of it accordingly. Generally speaking, orgs don't do that, right? They, they try something out. And I think this is probably the case with a lot of the sort of social media things that have gone amok they tried something else and they took it to scale without really considering what it might be like at scale, right? And so it doesn't necessarily have to really slow down the process a lot and it may not have even changed anything, but it does make the team and the organization more aware about what could happen, right? Good and bad when something's at scale. So that doesn't happen often inside an organization. So I don't know if I answered your question directly or if that's what you're looking for, but that's sort of why I sort of, the, I guess, the use case for governance or why it needs to happen and where and when it needs to happen. Well, so, and I think you answered it, but it, it's making me think of an, another issue, uh, which is scale, kind of making decisions about how good work ultimately is what we're hoping for can scale up. Uh, you know, obviously governance is required for that to happen, but as far as who figures a lot of this out, who implements it, 
you know, when it comes to uh, discussions of scale in the design world, you, you know, I'm all over this. We're, we're talking a lot about operations. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you're, you would argue for maybe a different approach, which is not necessarily to, to put a lot of this in the hands of the, the ops people, but to put it in the hands of a governing structure that is more cross-silo uh, that represents more perspectives. Well, okay, so yes and no. So I think one of the things that I haven't articulated is exactly what I think governance is, right? And so, and exactly what I think operations is. There's a relationship between the two of them. So when I'm talking about governance inside of an organization, I'm usually talking about being very clear about who makes decisions about strategy, policy, and standards. So when someone dials me up to do some, ask me to do some work with them, they're usually in a debate inside their organization. And sometimes the debate is as mundane as we're trying to pick a web content management system. IT thinks they should pick it. Marketing they should, thinks they should pick it. Who actually gets to decide? Same question about we're doing a redesign of the homepage and no one can agree, right? And it's like, okay, you've got a governance problem because you don't know where the authority to make certain types of decisions lie, right? So underneath that lack of understanding about where that authority lies is this little secret. And the secret is because nobody knows where that authority lies, it means random people make random decisions about things all the time as it relates to the things that they make and put online. And it also means that different areas of the organization assume that they have control over the things that they put online in ways that may or may not be, be true. And then also, and I think this last one is the most important, it means that nobody's looking at the full picture, right? So IT looks at the stuff IT cares about. Designers look at the things designers care about. Data people maybe look at the things that data people care about. Marketing, you know, just business units look at what they want to look at. So nobody's got the whole thing in hand. So at the end of the day, when we're working on a governance project, we're making sure that we understand what digital is inside the organization. So the scope of it, just you know, all the properties, all of the assets, having a full picture of those, knowing who touches them and who makes decisions about them. So that's a very sort of cold, generic exercise, but it's powerful because if you don't know the answers to those questions, it means that you're operating in an ad hoc way. So that's governance, like understanding who decides. Operations is how you get stuff done, right? And so that's also very important, but very different than governance. Okay, so it's almost like uh, the, the legislative function versus the executive function is probably a very imperfect metaphor. Yeah, fair enough, though. But yeah. let's put it there for now. So, okay, what, what really resonated for me, and anyone who listens to these podcasts knows that there's probably at some point I'll, I'll bring this metaphor up, is the blind man and the elephant idea. I mean, it, it sounds like you're saying in a way that um, governance is the some sort of uh, let's use this term structure as broadly as we can. It's the structure that gets those blind men talking so that they can have a, a unified vision of the, the reality that they confront. Well, I call it a framework. A framework is probably a better term, but there, it is something to put all those perspectives together. Now, uh, you know, how much of the challenge in doing that is around, so there's a couple issues I wonder about. Uh, you know, how much of these are, are, are getting in the way or, or that you see in your projects commonly as a consultant? Language issues, the fact that in different silos or let's say different blind men 
actually um, use different words to describe the same things. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, the other is uh, something you've already brought up uh, briefly is authority. Uh, how, how does authority get managed? Who, who ultimately is the authority when it comes to authority, right? So someone you know, has to have the authority to create a governance framework or correct. To, to benight a, a group of blind men to create that, that framework. So how do those two things play out in the governance process? So the, to, to answer the last one, that authority usually has to come from very high inside the organization because we're usually trying to align all the digital silos in the organization. And that can be a lot of them. They can be scattered all over the place, right? And so the first question you asked me, I can't remember. Uh, the first one was really about um, language. So how do you, yes. you know, deal with the fact that it's hard for people to communicate, even though they work for the same organization, they may just have such different you know, uh, uh, terminology, even different worldviews because they come from such different uh, tribes or, or sure. backgrounds or job categories, whatever it is. Yeah, so I would say everything that you've described is true, but it's almost too nice, right? And so, of course- That's people, me. Right, yeah, so there you go. So you, so you can't help it but say it that way, right? Honestly, if you ask me that why there are governance problems inside of organizations, I would say it's two big factors. One of them is just plain out and out power struggles. And the other one has to do with immaturity. So one of them is just the nature of particularly large organizations that are in silos that are, are you know, having debates around budgeting. They're struggling for funds, right? They're struggling to be impressive. They're struggling to hit their numbers. They're struggling to do whatever it is that they need to do to sort of win in that arena. And so in the absence of actually someone articulating what the strategy is, right, or what the policies that one ought to follow are, and the standards as well, and any other guidelines or procedures or whatever, people will do what's to their own benefit in their silo, right? And so that's just how it works in a big machine. The immaturity component of it just has to do with where we are in the development cycle of what is the internet and the web. So the internet's older than the web, but the web is still relatively new and it certainly is new in the enterprise. I know it's been around for a lot of people 25 years, right, inside the enterprise, but that's still relatively new. If you look at other technology kind of disruptions like, you know, telephony, radio, or whatever, it can take 50 to 100 years for the infrastructure to mature and for that thing to really lock in. So it's early, right? So part of that's just the maturity of the thing, right? right. We don't really know how to run it yet. And so that's why I think it's, in a lot of cases, not necessarily someone's fault, although I think there are some abusive cases of what's happening online where people have turned a blind eye because it was to their advantage, right? To turn a blind eye to some trends that weren't happening well. I personally feel like that's happened a lot in some of the big social media giants, but that's my opinion. But I would also just say it's still early, right? And so I think that's, those two are bigger contributors than we don't speak the same language or, you know, all those other things, which are also true, right? But when you say something like, do you think it's because we're not speaking the same language? That's assuming that they're sitting around the table having a conversation, right? In the first place, right. Right, and they're not. People are just going wild. And I know that there's always some 
sort of belly button person <laughs> inside the organization that's looking around and going, oh my God, this ship's taken on water, right? What are we going to do about it, right? Because that's the person who either inevitably, you know, calls someone like me on the telephone or is just trying desperately to get people's attention. And if the business model is such that it doesn't actually require your organization to do a fabulous job online in order to take, make money, you're kind of screwed, you know, because, you know, an organization can be profitable enough such that it's okay that you've got, you know, 97 different looking websites globally and, you know, a bunch of, a list of other bad digital behaviors, you know, that all of us would say aren't good to have. But if it's not actually impacting the bottom line and the company's profitable enough, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And that's why, you know, I'm saying these behaviors that you see in a Facebook or in a Twitter around data handling or just general immaturity or sort of, you know, lackadaisical or blind eye turning that's really just gets us all heated up. Those behaviors happen in large enterprises as well. But, you know, they do things like drill oil out of the ground or make tires or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. So we're not noticing them that much, but they're not unique behaviors. Well, so, you know, talking about patterns, let me ask you about the, the, the positive patterns that you encounter. So when you uh, are talking to um, a, a new potential client, what are the things that um, you notice right away that give you hope that once you're working with them, they're likely to succeed. And it may be that they're further along on the, on the maturity ladder, but what, what are the signs that, uh, that things could go well? One of them is that they have someone at the executive level that's sponsoring the project, right? The, the best case scenario and the, always the signals of success is when someone says, the CIO or the chief marketing officer said we need to do this, right? That's always a good indicator because it means that someone high up in the organization is aware of that there is a governance problem inside the organization and they're willing to sort of take it on and champion and sponsor it, which means that recommendations that get made have a better chance of being implemented. You need someone that high up because, you know, they need to cut across silos and they need to communicate with their peers. And it's better if that type of communication comes from top down and it's better if the budgeting that is going to be required to make some of the changes is facilitated from the top down. So do you, do you also look for budgeting where you, you have an indication that each silo or each player has put some money in the, into the kitty to where they're sharing the cost of this project? Well, let's just park that one for a second because budget's a whole nother thing and there's a, and you ask for positive things and there are positives and negatives around that. To answer that question directly, I would say, no, that's not something that I'm looking for, but there is a thing about budget that's different that we can talk about in a second. But to address your second question, which was um, your first question, which was what are the positive indicators? The number one positive indicator when we start a project to people that this is going to go well is, you know, standard management consulting practices. We come online, we meet people and we go and run around and talk to everybody. We always have a 90 minute orientation kickoff meeting at the beginning of every project. When an organization has managed to bring into the room, either virtually or physically, a really broad and diverse set of stakeholders to begin this dialogue and conversation, we know we've won. 
when we come around the table and it's only marketing or it's only the design team or it's only IT, we know there's an issue. Because it means they're not communicating internally and they don't understand that this is a cross-functional issue that affects all the business. I also want to see the various business lines and departments, the ones who are actually you know, requesting that certain functionality be created. And so when we see a diversity of resources around the table at the start of a project, I know they're serious and I know that they understand this is a cross-functional collaborative process that we need to, you know, go through in order to come up with a really good governing framework. So I always get excited when that happens. Of course, the fact that um, you're going to be speaking in, uh, at Enterprise, U, Enterprise UX to a group of senior, you know, leadership, uh, man, leader and manager designers, uh, you know, I, I mean, how come they can't solve this problem on their own? You, you've kind of addressed this already, but I, I think it's an important point that really needs to be emphasized that uh, a lot of those folks may think they are the, they're the right ones to ta tackle this. And, and I think you'd say that's not true. Well, I would say we don't know that that's true, right? That's a conversation. In certain organizations, maybe that person has the skill set, the design person has the skill set and the capacity to actually work this cross-functional problem. Um, so that might be the case, but I think oftentimes people who work in the design world, particularly people who have a UX focus where they're really looking at sort of big picture concerns, sort of want to naturally wrap their arms around this beast. And they're not always aware that, you know, from my vantage point, which is really looking at this as an organizational problem, right? An organizational design problem. Digital is a set of silos and the design component is one of those silos. And so we're trying to orchestrate and coordinate that set of silos so that they can functionally work together well by making decisions in sound ways and then moving them onto an operational plane where they can work together in concert. Sometimes it's even more aggressive operationally where we're just saying, you need to reorg. This is really a mess. Bring these together, throw this out, put this over here. So yeah, a design person could lead that effort, but it's really difficult to be sort of like the therapist for yourself. It's very different, difficult to have perspective on your own problems when you're down one silo. And so it's often helpful to either get some help or to get someone else inside your organization who's not part of the silo to sort of work that for you. Well, you know, one reason a lot of design people might be thinking about taking a lead in an area like this is the fact that, you know, we're very very uh, concerned about the the ethical implications of what we design. You know, we don't always feel like, and, and maybe we're not, maybe we're a bit blind to it. Uh, maybe we're just too siloed, but we feel often like there, there are not a lot of other parts of our organizations that are thinking about the ethical implications of what we do and what we create in quite the same way. Do, do you think that's, that's a fair assumption or? No, I don't. Okay. So <laughs> this, is the part that, this is part of the message that people don't like, like that I bring. So I think everybody cares about the ethical implications of what gets done. I think they care about the ethical implications that they can see and understand. So IT is very concerned, right, usually about how data is handled and where it rests, so much so to the extent that they annoy everyone about security and privacy issues. If there are security and privacy policies written inside your organization, they come from IT, right? People care about children's online privacy. They care about accessibility. There's all kinds of ethical concerns, 
right, that other parts of the organization care about. So designers don't have a monopoly on that, right? And so I think designers are more recently concerned about the sorts of things that we're seeing as relates to Facebook and data handling. And so my only criticism of that, and I don't want to sound rougher than I mean to sound, is that, you know, I, I talk to designers a lot, and they're often very wary to really deeply understand the richness of the functionality that they orchestrate. They don't want to understand the code. They don't under, want to understand how the data moves, right? They want to design at a high level, but not understand the technical implications of their design. And I think that's a mistake, right? And so I think, I think everybody cares because we're talking about a set of human beings and most people that I know are trying to do good work, right? They want to do, do work. They're not trying to build bad things and put them online, right? So I think it's, you know, that's a generous way to look at it. But I will also say specifically to the design community, there's an opportunity to step up if you really care, understand the implications of what you're designing, right? Because if you did, then you maybe might make some different choices, right? Particularly at that point in the process where I was talking about when you're deciding to scale and replicate, right? Things look good when there's one instance of it, but they maybe don't look good when there's 5 million instances of it. Or, you know, there's all sorts of those types of things. So you need to be able to think in that different sort of way. And I'm not saying designers need to code because I know that's against the rule, but there's no reason why they can't understand the mechanics of coding and data handling and metadata management and, you know, different high-level aspects of system architecture so they can understand the implications of the work they do. Well, and uh, I totally agree. And, and I also love that you keep coming back to the theme of scale. It's actually one of the four themes that we're going to cover in Enterprise UX. And the, I mean, it's just so important for us to understand that the, the work we do is, is never went off any longer. It, it, mm-hmm. it multiplies and multiplies, especially if we're successful. You know, right, which we all want to be. <laughs> it will be re-experienced again and again and again and again. So, yes, I mean, our brains are wired one way for a pre-digital world, and, and now we're in this infinitely replicable uh, uh, context that is, is we're, we're, we're adjusting. And I, I really appreciate that you're, you're looking at how we can all together make these adjustments uh, from a governance perspective, uh, both uh, at the talk you're going to give at Enterprise UX in June, and uh, also in your book, which um, I, I, one thing I love about, by the way, uh, is that you have three case studies at the end, one from higher ed, one from government, and one from the enterprise setting. So uh, if you're in any of those areas and you're struggling with some of the issues that uh, we've talked about today, you should really pick up a copy of Managing Chaos, Digital Governance by Design uh, at uh, rosenfeldmedia.com or uh, Amazon. Lisa, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Um, yeah, I was just at another event, if I'm allowed to say it, oh, um, yeah, in, in, in South Africa. I was at Pixel Up. It was really quite fun. Um, that's a whole other conversation um, of what some of this work that we're doing looks like um, on the African continent. It's really quite interesting. Um, but I ran into, um, he's going to kill me because I can't say, um, Kenneth Bowles. Kenneth Bowles. Yes, he. he it's, it's, it's a Welsh name. It's yes. a du- it's a double D. The double D a T H. Let me do it. Yes, it's so it's it's pronounced like Kenneth, like K E N N E T H, but it's spelled C E N N Y D D. 
See, right. I, don't, I don't know the standards for Welsh pronunciation. The standards are basically just leave all vowels out, or at least as many as you can, and double the consonants in. Well, that's the spelling part. How about we just call him Mr. Bowles? Sounds good. So I ran, it, I ran into Mr. Bowles, and he's putting out a book later this year called Future Ethics, um, Responsible Technology for the Connected Age. And so I got to see him give a talk about it at the event, and I think it's worth uh, taking a look at um, when it comes out. I don't agree with everything that he had to say, and we have a little bit of a debate about it, but I think there is room for a richness of texts, conversations on this particular issue. Um, I particularly am interested in things like at what point in the process do you consider ethical concerns, right? I think that's just as important of the, what concerns ought we to consider, but where in the process should we, con should we consider those things? So I think he's got a really good perspective and view on that. It's worth taking a look. Well, I like Kenneth's work uh, enough that I'll endorse it, even though it's not a Rosenfeld media book. That's all right. That's all right. It's, it's all right. Allowed. They can't yeah. all be Rosenfeld media books. Can they really? Well, let me give that some thought. We'll, we'll talk again. Anyway, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Lisa Welchman, uh, esteemed, famous international consultant when it comes to digital governance. And I, uh, uh, we should have probably mentioned this will certainly be, resonate well with the Enterprise UX crowd, whom you'll be giving a keynote to in June, uh, that you cut your teeth at uh, Cisco, which is uh, I did. Quite, a, quite an enterprise setting back in the uh, 90s when a million websites were being built in that setting uh, and needed a little governance. So that's, that's where she comes from. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, if you're coming to the conference, uh, you're going to really enjoy what she has to say. Uh, and um, obviously you should pick up a copy of the book between now and then, or uh, if not, just grab a copy, Managing Chaos, Digital Governance by Design. Thanks for joining us today, Lisa. Thanks, Lou.